Yeah, thank you to everyone here uh, today. Thank you to the organizers, um, what I've been calling the little anti-war coalitions. I have to say coalitions now, don't I? Coalition that could. When I, at first, <laughs> I was, it really was only Hamilton, I think, that that was uh, working towards trying to free Meng Wanzhou. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, what William said just now, it's, it's striking to me, like while we are allowed to speak <laughs> for as long as we're allowed to speak, I think we have to, we have to do it. Um, you know, since, uh, since England <laughs> suppressed uh, sympathetic uh, expression toward the French Revolution and the, uh, at the end of the 18th century, our Western civilization has always had some ambivalence about allowing dissent. Um, but like I said, we have to uh, we have to try. Um, uh, it, it, I I really appreciate what the previous panelists said because what I'm going to talk about really complements um, the economic and the domestic uh, anti-Asian racism. Um, aspects that uh, John and William have covered. Uh, there are a few things that I'm not going to talk about that I think are worth pointing to if you want to look into this a little further. Um, I, it's worth studying the Hassan Diab case um, that's going on. This is a, a professor uh, from Ottawa who was uh, extradited to France, uh, faced a whole nightmare of being jailed. Uh, he was under house arrest here for a long time. Uh, the French investigators ultimately decided uh, there was not enough evidence to proceed. He was freed. He's now uh, been, he's now back under threat, under appeal. And his lawyers have argued that Canada's extradition system is fundamentally broken. Um, the things that he is the the things that he's accused of doing, uh, he could not have done, um, and the evidence that was used to uh, accuse him in France would not be accepted in a Canadian court. Nonetheless, uh, Canada has extradited him once, and he's under threat of being extradited again. I say this just because. Um, this is one element of the Canadian system, one of many, that is playing into this uh, issue. Um, Canada feels the need to give France whatever it wants, give the US whatever it wants when it comes to handing people over uh, to systems that don't even, that don't share um, the ability to mount a defense that exists here in Canada. Um, there's a coalition in Ottawa working on this, in case you want to follow this. Um, there, the four notes that I want to touch on in the next few minutes. Uh, first, the kind of discourse reasons why China is being demonized in Canada. Um, second, the kind of imperial hangover that's leading to a lot of this racism um, that's creating this enabling environment for what's happening in Meng Wanzhou's case. Um, related to that, Canada's history of colonialism, which could we could talk about for much longer than a couple of minutes, but I'll give you some points to think about when you're when you're assessing the credibility of uh, the Canadian Parliament in accusing leveling accusations of genocide, for example. And finally, the kind of imperialist fantasies about China, again, that create an enabling environment. So, the dis 
the discourse reasons, as I've termed it. Um, Canada has failed to deal with COVID-19. Um, Canada, as Linda McQuaig uh, has written about and others, privatized uh, a really uh, effective vaccine production company some decades ago. Uh, we um, are structurally unable, it seems, to learn from China. There was an article uh, by Matthew Raza in Salon just yesterday titled, China eradicated COVID-19 within months. Why won't America learn from them? And that question could easily uh, apply to Canada as well. Um, we have uh, a, a health care system that is the envy of the United States, but our elder care system is private and for-profit, and it is where 80% of COVID deaths have occurred. Um, 2,877 plus deaths in Ontario, 3,890 deaths in Quebec, uh, long-term care facilities. But at the time that this paper was published that I'm citing from The Lancet, so that's more people that have died in long-term facil care facilities in Canada than have died in all of China in the pandemic. Um, China, as William mentioned, has eliminated poverty in our time. That's one of the most remarkable achievements in human history. But we can't talk about any of this because if you mention any of this, it'll, it's instantly the reply is, well, you know, China's imperialist or something, you know, Xinjiang genocide. Um, these kinds of claims are used to silence even chances where we could learn something from another society. Um, so, uh, which is even, there's an even stranger element to this that I'm going to get back to, which is uh, it, Canada does rely on um, Chinese, the Chinese economy for a, a lot of things. China, Chinese, I mean, Canadian universities are trying to recruit increasing numbers of Chinese students. As foreign students, they pay foreign student fees. They're an increasing part of the um, public university's business model um, as the public universities decide we're not going to rely on public funding, we're going to rely on foreign students. So it's like a qu quite a message that we're sending to Chinese students, right? Um, you're genocidal, you're evil, uh, come study with us and pay foreign student fees, please. Um, bail out our public universities. Um, but this is uh, related to the imperial hangover because um, the idea Canada has a long connection with China through the British Empire. Um, if you look at the careers of, for example, Garnet Wolseley, who was the military commander who was sent in 1870 to suppress Louis Riel's resistance to the encroachment of Canada. Or you look at the career of Lord Elgin, um, who was the governor of British North America, the governor general, who granted um, Canada responsible government in the 1840s. Well, these two figures uh, were both present at the burning of the Chinese uh, summer palace in Beijing during the Second Opium War. 
Um, and if you look, I, I've just been researching these, uh, these, this period of Chinese and Indian history and British imperialism. The numbers are absolutely staggering for what happened. You know, the 1857 war in India, some estimates are that 10 million people in India were killed uh, by British imp imperial campaigns in the aftermath of that. The, op the Second Opium War occurred during the Taiping Rebellion, which had everything to do with imperial encroachments and which people think killed maybe 20 million people. Um, there were famines in India and China in 1876 and 1896 that killed more tens of millions. Um, Mike Davis wrote about these and called them the late Victorian holocausts. Not for nothing. Um, it may have been one-fifth or one-eighth of the populations of the most populous countries in the world. And, you know, this is grim and gory and gruesome, but... The point is that this was the time that Canada was also establishing its current territorial extent. Um, it was encroaching on indigenous land starting after uh, Confederation, accelerating after Confeder Confederation. Um, and this was the time when all kinds of complex manipulations of commodities and the gold standard and finance um, and markets were all being manipulated for the maximum benefit of imperialism. And there's a analogous financial system today that has to do with the US dollar and sanctions and the military bases and the military campaigns. And again, this would take a long time to unspool, but it's well worth um, studying uh, and understanding if you want to understand the real causes, as you know, um, our previous speakers have said, of this new Cold War that we find ourselves in. So, I just, as I, as you go through Canadian history in this period, some of the, some, there are some amazing things that, that jump out. Um, some of the things that right now Canada is accusing China of doing are almost exactly things that we have documented historical evidence that Canada ha did to First Nations in the course of its expansion. Um, there, you know, in addition to banning cultural ceremonies, right, such as the potlatch, uh, forbidding people to move freely through past laws, forbidding the use of the, their home languages, indigenous languages, the kidnapping of women and girls to force them to accept whiskey trading, for example. Um, the, when, when, when Canada imposed a kind of a famine on Western indigenous nations, um, and Sir John A. Macdonald, who is still on our money um, and whose statues still continue to adorn many campuses in other parts of Canada, um, when the Liberals criticized him for spending too much on famine relief for Indigenous nations. And he reassured the, the Liberals and he said, listen, we are doing all we can by refusing food until the Indians are on the verge of starvation to reduce the expense. Um, there, was, there have been accusations that 
people in Xinjiang, being Muslims, have been forced to eat pork. Um, it just struck me as a very dramatic story in Canadian history that in the during the 1880s famine, one of the indigenous uh, nations, Chief Piapo's band, they were they did work for the food ration and they were given poisoned, rancid pork. One of their leaders complained, I mean, it was inedible, and the Indian agent said the Indians should eat the bacon or die and be damned to them. Uh, 130 people died after eating this. Um, sexual sterilization, the Sexual Sterilization Act of Alberta, under which thousands of indigenous women were sterilized between 1928 and 1972. Um, the destruction of data and evidence. Um, you know, there was a whistleblower named Peter Bryce who wrote a book called The Story of a National Crime, being a record of the health conditions of the Indians of Canada from 1904 to 1921. Um, so there have been cover-ups of this data, uh, William mentioned the, the Exclusion Act um, in 18, the Electoral Franchise Act that took the franchise away from Asian Canadians. Uh, when, when this happened, Sir John A. Macdonald, uh, he said in Parliament, the Aryan races will not wholesomely amalgamate with the Africans or the Asiatics. The cross of those races, like the cross of the dog and the fox, is not successful. Um, same guy said in the same year, we must vindicate the position of the white man, we must teach the Indians what law is. Uh, in the 1920s, um, there were bans on political organizing and the employment of lawyers. So you might make an obvious defense of Canada by saying, well, that was then, right? And this is now. So the question that arises then is what is being done to return what was stolen by these means? the recommendations on missing and murdered Indigenous women, the TRCA, the, the Reconciliation Commission, the TRC, yeah, the TRC, Indigenous languages, um, drinking water, 30% of First Nations water systems are at high risk for contamination, one in eight communities at any given time. And the government, the Canadian government, is spending hundreds of millions fighting um, against Indigenous land claims in court, using injunctions to build mines, uh, there are vigilantes committing violence against indigenous people exercising their inherent right to fish, for example, on the East Coast, happened during the pandemic. So um, the last thought I want to leave you with is um, you might think that all of this Five Eyes stuff and these cases and this kind of hatred that's being stirred up against Chinese people and against China is about excluding China, right? It's like there's a there's a kind of an idea like we have to keep Huawei off our networks or we have to exclude China. But it isn't really about exclusion. Even if you go back to the Vancouver riots uh, on the West Coast, you know, about a hundred years ago, that was not about exclusion. It's much more a, a technique of control. Um, and the, you know, the imperial drive is to control everything that happens in the world. Um, and if China could just exercise its innovations um, in the service of the empire, 
um, then they could be given a subordinate position um, in that world order. But the, the panic uh, that imperialists are feeling, I think, has to do with the possibility that China is returning to its histor long historical position of being about 25% of the world economy. Um, and, you know, Canada could really gracefully uh, accept this change by working towards things like truth and reconciliation, land back, you know, returning the land to indigenous people, adjusting to a post-imperialist world. I think that um, Canadians are interested in this kind of a world, um, but our elites are very much not, um, and so that's the, uh, that's the task that we have before us, I would say. Um, and yeah, I, again, I appreciate everybody who's here for it. <laughs> Thank you.